Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. The rest of us, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 14 this morning. We are back in 1 Corinthians 14, and we're looking at this important passage. There's so much in this chapter, and I want to just read the verses and set them before us. Um, We started looking at verses 1 to 5 last Sunday. We'll finish out this section this week in verses 6 to 19. But Paul says this as he turns into chapter 14. He says, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, and greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? Yet even lifeless things, either flute or harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in the tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? For if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air." There are perhaps a great many kinds of tongues in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, as we've been working through this section, we've been asking and answering the question, what does it look like? What does it look like to walk in love when the church comes together to gather on the Lord's day and why? What does that look like? What does it look like to walk in love and why? This is an important question for the Corinthian church to work through and think through, to ask and answer, and it's an important question for you and I to work through and think through and answer as well. As we know, studying through this letter, the Corinthian church was was a was a church that was um, very out of control. There was so much chaos in their midst, whether it was how they came around the Lord's table, or whether it's what was happening here with the exercising of spiritual gifts, or whether it was the uh, arrogance and the pride of leaders in the church, of everyone wanting to kind of be seen and known. There was just so much competing effort for uh, you know within the church for members 
members to kind of outdo one another and to put themselves forward in, this, uh, in the church and uh, distinguish themselves from everyone else. And so what happens as you read through this letter is you understand that the focus of the church gathering was not on serving one another, it was not on building up the church, but rather the focus of the church gathering was to um, kind of build themselves up or to establish themselves. And so that was settling into a pattern of an abuse and misuse of this spiritual gift, this miraculous spiritual gift of tongues or languages. Now, in chapter 12, he's explaining, has been explaining, what the purpose of spiritual gifts are as a whole. There's an overview uh, given as he explains that there's a diversity in unity within the church, that all are not gifted the same way, and all are not, uh, would not, you would not expect them to exercise gifts similarly to one another, but God gives each part for the, you know, for the building up of the whole. And yet we are still one body. It is still one God who gifts all those things as, he ought, you know, as we uh, live together in the life of the church. And then he ends in chapter 12 and verse 31 by saying, to earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then that leads into chapter 13, which we said is, a, is an overview of the priority and preeminence of love, Christian love, and how that should be working itself out in the church. And he's very practical in these verses of chapter 13. He is explaining what it is and what it is not. And then he calls us at the end to pursue that which was eternal. And love, of course, being that which endures beyond the present temporal realm. Love, Christian love will always be there. And we will be uh, marked as those who walk in perfect love in glory. And so he says, you know, why not do that now? Because all these other things are passing away. And then he pivots. And, uh, you know, if you were just read chapter 12 and 13, you might come to the end of chapter 13 and think, well, Paul is kind of anti-gifts. Maybe he doesn't actually want them to... Uh, to be concerned about gifts at all. And he, he then turns now in chapter 14 to explain that, no, that the, the problem is not that he is anti-gifts or, or that he is kind of suppressing that, but rather he pivots to show them how to uphold both, that you can both walk in love and you can exercise spiritual gifts. But that means prioritizing those gifts that are most effectual for the building up of others. And that, what was, and that is what was lacking in their midst. They were not concerned about building up one another. And so he says in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love. And it's unfortunate that the NAS says yet, because it really is an and. And desire earnestly, eagerly await spiritual gifts. But he says, especially that you would prophesy. There is a command here that both are true. We are to follow after love. We're to chase after it like one in pursuit of something that we just cannot let up. And he says we can also at the same time eagerly desire, eagerly await, which would probably be a more faithful translation, spiritual giftedness, that which pertains to the spirit. And he says, above all, that you would prophecy. And so then he shows us in verses 2 and 3, and we saw this last Sunday, and he explains why. For the one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. But no one for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophecies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. 
And so as he lays this out here, he makes clear that what was probably, and we said what was likely happening was that while some did have the true gift of languages, there were many more who did not and were basically pretending or trying to um, make a show of themselves in the church gathering. And uh, we, we made some comments about why we think that is just grammatically and his, using the singular versus the plural and so forth in these verses. But the point Paul makes is whether it's a legitimate gift, and certainly if it's an illegitimate gift, what matters most is the prophecy, the proclamation of the word of God in the church gathering. This is what is essential because he says only in that context is the church truly edified. He says in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. And I think there is some sarcasm in those words as he says that. But one who prophesies edifies, builds up the church. So very, very important. He says, now I wish you all spoke in tongues. If God were to call all of you to do that, that would be his choice and that would be wonderful. He says, but even more, I would prefer that you prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in a tongue unless there's interpretation so that the church may be built up. So as we look at these verses, what we made clear last Sunday, what does it look like when the church walks in love, is that it prioritizes the preaching of the prophetic word in the church gathering. That is one of the most obvious kind of practical takeaways from verses 1 to 5. It prioritizes the preaching of the prophetic word. And the reason is that because that is what builds up others. That is what strengthens others, which is the heart of love. Love is not about you having certain feelings. It is about you. Christian love is about you giving your life away for the benefit and well-being of of others. And so so all of that is kind of what we looked at last Sunday and we we talked a little bit more about uh, how we think about miraculous gifts and whatnot. We're not going to get back into that this morning. But uh, it's part of Paul's bigger argument here. And so the first thing that the church does, how does it what does it look like to walk in love? It prioritizes the preaching of the word because that is the prophetic word that we have today, the scriptures. But there's a second element that we want to look at in verses 6 to 12 this morning and that is that when the church walks in love, and this is kind of the why, it steers away from all that is unknown and unclear. So the church as a whole steers away, does everything in its power not to uh, dwell on that which is unknown and that which is unclear. And he leads off in verse 6 with a, with a command, with a, it's a command, but it's kind of a rhetorical question as well. He says, but now, brethren, if, if I come to you, he says, now imagine I come to you speaking in tongues. What will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy? So Paul asked this rhetorical question. He says, suppose I come to you, right? And there's a little bit of a in this verse, there's, there's a little bit of an apologetic here. Paul is saying, okay, and he is going to come to them. At least that's his plan. If I come to you and all I do is speak to you in a, in a language you don't understand, it could be the real gift of languages or it could be this counterfeit gift that was, that was so prominent in their midst. He asks, what benefit would my presence be to you if that was all I did? If you didn't understand anything that I said. And of course, the obvious answer to that question is there would be no benefit. It would be no benefit. And, it's, and, and, and Paul discloses, he says, if I speak to new revelation to you, something that uh, God has given to me 
that is uh, true to his word, and I give that to you, or some word of knowledge to apply the scriptures, or I give you some prophetic utterance communicating God's will, or some teaching that explains God's truth. You know, he says, if I do those things and you don't understand them, what benefit is that? What profit would that be? And of course, what's presumed as he says that is that when he gives that revelation, when he gives that word of knowledge, that prophetic utterance or that teaching, he's doing it in a language and with words that all would understand, that all would be able to receive. He says, but if I come in speaking in tongues, which is what they were so enamored with, they wouldn't have any clue what he was saying and they would walk out from that encounter with nothing. They would not be advantaged at all. And so there is this self-evident reality from Paul here that it barely needs explanation, and yet that was lost on the Corinthian church. It was completely lost to them. And so he, he goes into these illustrations, and he, and he explains that in verses 7, 7 to 11. And, um, you know, as we look at verse 7, he, he, he takes illustrations, analogies that everybody understands, so I think that's even fitting. He goes, he goes from something that's so obvious, so straightforward, that there can be no confusion. He says in verse 7, Yet even lifeless things, either a flute or a harp, in producing a sound, if they do not produce a distinction in tones, how will it be known what is played on the flute or on the harp? And these are instruments that we understand today and were commonplace, of course, in the first century. His emphasis is on you know, his, his point is made clear in the how clause. How will anyone know what tune is being played unless there's a distinction in notes? Neither the flute nor the harp are intelligible in the sense of having any real uh, cohesiveness to them unless there is a meaningful variation in sounds produced. So some kind of aimless song, some kind of aimless jangle means nothing. It doesn't entertain, certainly, <laughs> It doesn't have any rhythm to it. It doesn't have any movement. It doesn't have any cohesiveness. It's just what? It's just noise. It's just noise. It's why, as parents, when our kids were young, we never had a drum set in our house. We, we never even had a keyboard until someone gave us one because we understood that all little kids could do on a drum set or a keyboard is what? just bang on it, right, and make noise. That's all they could do as a young person. That, and, and, and that's exactly Paul's point as he makes this analogy. And that leads him to, and it's interesting, he moves from things that are um, kind of meaningless in terms of like significance to something that's a little bit more significant in verse 8. He says, now, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? So he moves from just a general recreational instrument to something more important like a bugle, which was used to uh, signal you know, an army to move or, or to do something. He says, if it doesn't have a clear call, who's going to be ready for battle? Now, that's a little more serious. That's a little bit more meaningful. The trumpet communicated the commands of the generals or the commands of the, of the officers on the battlefield uh, to communicate what they as um, soldiers were to do, whether they were to advance or to retreat. Right? And if you didn't understand what the battle call was, then you wouldn't know what to do or which way to move. And, of course, those of you who have been in military service, imagine trying to launch an offensive with no communication. That would be next to impossible. 
It would be next to impossible. And so, and so he says, listen, if, 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 if a bugle cannot be understood, it fails its essential purpose, and it is, it is useless. And so verse 9, like a hammer blow drives his point home, at least in a preliminary way, he says, so also you, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. I think... Verse 9, it's very important. Word order has meaning in the original language here. He puts you at the front, and he, and he puts um, by the, your, your tongue at the front, which, which he doesn't really have to do. It is emphatic. It is underscoring the connection between the words they spoke, they spoke and the intelligibility that was necessary. The Corinthians were glorying in unintelligible tongues, most of which were counterfeit, some of which may have been legitimate, but the fact is that speech is either intelligible or, he says, you're basically just speaking into the air. It's hot air. And it's the same for us. We cannot communicate as believers Christian truth to others unless we are doing that in a way that is understandable. The Corinthians were so fleshly, they were so self-centered that they completely lost sight of the foundational rule of communication, and that is that the person you're talking to needs to understand what you're saying. They have to be able to receive and comprehend what is being communicated. They were only, but they were only interested in impressing themselves. They were only concerned about edifying themselves as much as they could do that. The corporate gathering was about them personally and how it made them feel or how it elevated or called attention to them personally, which is a serious, serious problem. And so Paul continues then. He moves from a harp and a, a flute, which is kind of meaningless, to something more significant, which is, of course, a bugle on the battlefield. And then he continues to pound away with a third analogy in verses 10 and 11. He says, let me get to it. There are perhaps a great many kind of languages in the world, and no kind is without meaning. If then I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. This is obvious. This is self-evident. A language without meaning is pointless. A language without understanding isn't a language. It's just gibberish. It's meaning communicated and understood that makes language what it is, that makes it a, a, a means of communication. He says there are perhaps, and he's, he's speaking very um, non-specifically here. He's, he's like, I, he doesn't even know how many languages there are. Perhaps there are, there are many kinds of dialects in the world. They all sound different. But, he says, each one has a universal purpose to communicate. It has a purpose to transmit meaning between those who speak it to those who receive it. And he says, not only must legitimate language be used in order to uh, communicate, but both the speaker and the hearer must comprehend it. By definition, communication is, is two-sided. Several, you know, my, my wife's family, they speak Cantonese, Right? I know very little Cantonese, even after all these years. I can get a by with a few basic uh, uh, greetings, and, and I know a few key words. But when we visit, 
them. Very little direct communication happens between me and them. But, you know, several years ago, they came to visit us here, and they, we happened to be over Memorial Day weekend, so they came to our picnic. And uh, our brother Brian was able to have a grand conversation with my father-in-law because he speaks Cantonese. He had more meaningful communication with my father-in-law in that hour than I have had in my 15 years of my life. I watched the two of them chatting away, and I had absolutely no clue what they were talking about. None. And to echo Paul's words, if he says, like, listen, I am to my father-in-law when I speak a barbarian. And my father-in-law, when he speaks, is a barbarian to me. This word barbarian is an interesting word. It, it is literally an, uh, an onomatopoetic word. The, the original language is just barbaros. It has these twin syllables, bar, bar. It's just kind of gibberish. That's what foreign languages sound like to us, right, when we don't understand them. And so to a person who doesn't know a language, all their words just sound very similar and meaningless. And this is how uh, how uh, Greek-speaking persons thought about everyone that didn't speak Greek in the ancient world. They, were bar- they just lumped them all together. They were barbarians. And it has, obviously has a, a negative context, but it, it's more in terms of they're just un, un- understand- they're not understandable in what they communicate. Their language is unintelligible. And so this argument by Paul is one of the lesser to the greater. If a lack of intelligibility makes communication meaningless when it comes to real known languages, he says, how much more meaningless is a lack of intelligibility when it comes to ecstatic speech masquerading as the gift of languages? It is a serious, serious thing. And so the conclusion comes to us then in verse 12. He says, so also... Since you were zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound, he says, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Again, the you, the second person pronoun is emphatic. It drives home the relevance that what Paul is saying is for his audience. He says, so also you, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, which in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's a a good thing. Um, He says, seek then to abound overflow for the edification of the church. This is what is most important. It's a theme that he comes at again and again and again through this chapter. It's the application of what it means to walk in love. It is to build others up, to see them strengthened. Paul doesn't blame them for thinking and wanting to see the Spirit at work in their midst. That's a good thing. He says, excel at that. But he says, we must excel not in promoting ourselves, not in exalting ourselves, but in building up other believers. Spiritual gifts, as one commentator said, are incompatible with spiritual selfishness. Spiritual gifts are incompatible with spiritual selfishness. And while it's right and it's good to desire to excel In the exercise of spiritual gifts, those gifts must be doing something. They must be building others up. They must be strengthening them. That's what is essential. If they don't edify, they don't matter. And as we've seen throughout, they could very well be counterfeit. They could be fake. This, unfortunately, is what is lacking in so much, I think, of the charismatic 
movement that we see today with its emphasis on speaking in tongues, its emphasis on words of prophecy. There is never seems to be a, a, a stopping and asking of oneself, are others being edified? Are others being built up? Are they, be, are they become, and by, me, by that I mean, are they being more, becoming more like Christ as a result of what's happening? Are their churches becoming more well-rounded in the true knowledge and, and discernment that Paul prays for the Philippian church, like in chapter 1? And are they becoming more discerning to distinguish between not just good and evil, black and white, but this is where discernment really is, shines forward. They're more discerning in what's better and best, right? It's one thing to say, like, it, it has one level of discernment to say that this is quartz and this is a diamond, right? It takes a whole other level of discernment to say this is a diamond that is, you know, has this quality, and this is a flawless diamond. That requires a special level of discernment to be able to see and to evaluate. And that is, you know, that is not the question that's being asked. And so, you know, as I think about, you know, what's going on in so many contexts, I don't see a lot of discernment. I don't see a lot of edification. We don't see a lot of Christ-like character being formed. Many of these churches that claim the miraculous gifts are still active would make their claims a lot more believable if they weren't so emaciated theologically. And if they weren't so far outside of orthodoxy when it comes to things like foundational things like the Trinity or the person and work of Christ or the church or, or the Holy Spirit, it would be far easier to take their claims seriously if they were orthodox in those things. But as it is presently, that world is an eclectic house filled with teachers and preachers, some of whom are very well-meaning and some of whom are very sincere. And many of the people in those churches, uh, they, they know God and they love Christ, but they just don't know. But there are many, many more who are heretics, who are opportunists, who are grifters, men and women who seem more concerned about lining their pockets and monetizing the desires of the flesh. I'm thinking more of terms of the health and wealth prosperity preachers and these faith healers who bilk people in their time of weakness. They're much more concerned about that than humble service for the glory of the Savior. Listen, the clearest evidence of the Spirit's work in our midst is the building up of the body of Christ into maturity with a measure, with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. That's Ephesians 4. That is the evidence of the Spirit's work in a church. It is not whether the majority of the church claims to commune with God in, pri in a private prayer language that they and no one else understands. That is not a work of the Spirit. The Spirit, Jesus says, will take of mine and disclose it to you. The Spirit exalts who? Christ, not himself. So very, very important. And so as a church, what does it look like to walk in love? It, it is to steer away from all that is unknown, all that is unclear. And that leads into the third and final point that I want to draw out in verses 13 and 19, and it is this. When the church walks in love, it prioritizes the prophetic word. It stays clear of all that is unclear. And it, thirdly, it edifies others by engaging the mind. It edifies others by engaging the mind. 
you look at verse 13, you see, again, this um, tone of sarcasm renews here by Paul. There's a direct connection, um, inferentially, between 12 and 13. The therefore connects it to verse 12 and what he has just said. He says, therefore, on account of this, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And there's, there's, this, there's a reason to take this as, as, a, as a statement that's somewhat tongue-in-cheek, somewhat sarcastic, because as he points out, their immaturity is the problem. He says it in chapter 20, I'm excuse me, in verse 20. He mentioned it in chapter 13. He gave the illustration, illustration of speaking like a child, acting like a child. He even talks about it back in chapter 12 when he says, desire what is greater. But we know that he's speaking with a, a hint of sarcasm here, I think mostly because of the rhetorical questions that are asked as we go through this. We'll see them in a moment. But also the ironic way that certain statements convey the meaning, a meaning that is opposite of what it says on the surface. That's what sarcasm does. It, it conveys a meaning that's... Um, understood to be the opposite of the actual words that you say. That's what sarcasm does. And so what we see here is him in verses 13 and 14 uh, calling out this, um, th this need for them to, <clears throat> to understand what is being said. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Paul says, in effect, while you're, not, while you're going on in your counterfeit tongues, maybe pray for God to give you the gift of interpretation so that what you're saying would make some benefit to the church. Because if I pray in a tongue like you all are, that's what's implied in verse 14, my mouth is moving, but my mind is shut off. This is not a legitimate command in, in and of itself he is, it is a sense kind of um, confronting in a mocking kind of way. And we know that because as believers, who's the one that gifts us with the gift of interpretation or the gift of tongues if they're legitimate? It's the Spirit. He gives to each one sovereignly as he wills. It's not something that we are to pursue or, or pray for a certain gift. S specific gifts aren't something we ask God to work in us, he simply gives them and we exercise them for the benefit of the church. And beyond that, he was talking about the Holy Spirit here in verse 14. The Spirit doesn't pray through a person bypassing their mind in a fruitless way. It, there's a possessive here that connects the mind and the Spirit. My mind, my spirit. And he's, he's saying, if I pray in a counterfeit tongue, my breath my immaterial person is doing something. My mouth is moving, but my mind is unfruitful. This is, this is not a legitimate expression of how the gifts are to work. This is sarcasm. His words are dripping with irony here. He's calling out what was going on in their midst and drawing attention to how it was incompatible with the true manifestation of the gift of languages. This is not what it should have been. This is not instruction. We are to aim at the mind than to hit the heart. And that is the point of verse 15. Paul now speaks plainly. He says, what then? What then? Because the, the outcome, if you have the NAS, it's in italics because it's not there. That word, 
That's an interpretive decision by the translators. But it literally could just be Paul saying, well, what of it? So what? And that, that's exactly what he's getting at. That's why I say there's, there's this tone of sarcasm here. This is not him working through it very straightforwardly. He says, what then? This is the so what statement that he's been driving at. The so what is there's really no place for mindless, ecstatic prayer that no one understands. That's his point. What, is, what then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Yes, praying and singing are to engage that spirit, that non-material you, that psychological you that you can't see, that you can't cut open and look at. But, and so in some ways it kind of encapsulates the affections, but he says prayer and singing are meant to engage the affections, but it's also meant to engage the mind and it's meant meant to engage the will in our hearts. So edification cannot exist apart from the mind. Spirituality involves more than just your mind. It's not just a bare intellectualism, but it never excludes the mind, ever. I mean, isn't that what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, right? In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, He says, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. And thus be able to prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. There's no sanctification apart from the mind. Or Ephesians 4 and verse 23, where we're commanded to lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and instead that you be renewed, he says, in the spirit of your mind. That sanctification process, that being made into, brought into greater conformity to the truth, that happens through the mind. Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your what? Mind, with all your strength. So in Scripture, and certainly in Paul's writing, there is no premium, no premium placed on ignorance or just bare emotion, but there's a huge, huge premium placed on meditating and thinking about God's word and renewing our minds. So what are those benefits? I'm glad you asked, because I have several. Here's one benefit of having your mind engaged. First, meditating on the word, filling up your mind with truth improves our general knowledge and retention of the scriptures. Our minds are forgetful. Our minds are like, like a colander. <laughs> Mine's got big holes in it. You put stuff in, it just leaks out. That's especially true when it comes to the scriptures. And so meditating on God's word and engaging with the truth, it seals it up in our minds because we're thinking about it and we're comparing it to other truth and, and we're seeing how it all fits together and associating it with familiar things, and it locks that truth away in our minds. Psalm 119, verse 99 says, I have more insight than all my teachers, and here's the reason, for your testimonies are my meditation. So there's insight, wisdom, is connected to knowing the word of God with our mind. So if we're ready, if we're going to be ready with our spiritual armor, we must fill our mind with God's word, God's word. 
Secondly, a knowledge of the word of God deepens repentance. It deepens repentance. You think about when Israel came back into the land and they, they didn't rebuild the temple. And the book of Haggai, is conf- you know, the prophet is confronting them for their lack of, um, uh, they're neglecting the true worship of Yahweh and that is evidenced by their inability or their lack of concern for rebuilding the temple, which is where worship was to be centered. It says in Haggai chapter 1, verse 5, the prophet says, Consider your ways. Consider your ways. Israel was neglecting the true worship and presence of God in their midst, and they repented of that sin, obviously, and they built the temple, rebuilt the temple. But that happened by a time of self-examination, meditating on God's word. And so, like a hunting dog that relentlessly chases a rabbit, so then meditation on God's word continuously probes the depths of the heart until sin's deceitfulness is revealed. So important. You cannot live a life of true repentance apart from the truth, meditating on that truth. Secondly, or thirdly, excuse me, Uh, meditating on God's word, aiming at the mind to fill up our mind with truth increases our resolve to fight sin. So this kind of goes hand in glove with repentance because repentance is a turning away. Uh, Obedience is the putting on of righteousness. Filling up our mind with God's word allows the heart to walk in the spirit, right? You can't walk in the spirit apart from having your mind filled with truth. And so Galatians 5 verse 16 is such an important reminder. He says, you know, if, if you're going to uh, not fulfill the desires of the flesh, then, then you have to walk in the Spirit. When the cup is full, you can't put anything else in it. And so we need to fill up our minds with truth so that we cannot be filling it up with temptation and sin. One of the key benefits of, of filling up the mind is that it brings a person to concrete resolutions and determinations that are firm and strong and not flighty which is so often what happens. We have just a kind of a cursory back-of-the-mind knowledge of what the scriptures say is right and wrong, but we don't have any conviction about it or we don't have any clarity about it, and so we're not compelled to obey it. Fourth, we must engage the mind because it inflames our, our affections, our emotions for the Lord. And see, this is what was lacking in, first Corinth, in, in the Corinthian church. They wanted, the, they wanted the excitement without the truth. They wanted the experience without the exposition. And so for us, we need to understand that, that one leads to the other, but you can't get to the one without the other. Everyone who's walked with Christ knows it doesn't take long for spiritual fervor to cool off and apathy to set in. You take a boiling pot off the stove... That thing can cool down to room temperature in a few hours. So, a sh- you know, in the same way, a short time without the warm fellowship of our Lord through his word, that can cool our zeal for Christ. It zaps our joy. It zaps our conviction. We need, we need meditation to keep the fire stoked, white hot. And one commentator said this, is the rays of the sun may warm us, but they do not inflame us unless they are contracted in a burning glass, meaning like a magnifying glass. He says, so in the same way, some slight thoughts of heavenly things may warm us a little, but they will never inflame the soul 
unless they be fixed in close meditation. So we must aim at the mind to inflame the heart for the Lord. Fifth, filling up our mind with truth creates a life of joy, thankfulness, and contentment. Right? We, our, our, our hearts are weak. Our world is corrupt. We're bombarded with discouragement and wickedness on every side. Filling up our minds with truth then transforms us from being men and women of misfortune to people of praise. And that's what we need to be. Psalm 104, verse 33 and 34 connects meditation, filling up our mind with truth, and praise. It says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have all my being. Let my meditation be pleasing to him. As for me, I shall be glad in the Lord. Many of us are defeated. Many of us are discouraged because we believe all the depressing lies of the flesh rather than being renewed in the spirit of our minds with the uplifting truths of God and his word. So if we want to have a life of joy and thankfulness and contentment, you cannot have that as a believer apart from filling up your mind with the truth. So we must aim at the mind to hit the heart. We aim at the mind to hit the heart. This improves our knowledge of Scripture. It deepens repentance. It increases our resolve to fight sin. It inflames our affections for the Lord. It creates joy, thankfulness, and contentment. The alternative, verse 16 and verse 17, the alternative is not a good one. Otherwise, he says, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying. If we aim at the heart to hit the mind, then we'll be on target. But if we aim at the heart and bypass the mind, it is futile. Verse 16, right? The ungifted person here, who's he talking about? It could be an unbeliever. Most likely, though, is a young believer, someone who hasn't been um, baptized and welcomed into the full fellowship of the church, has the idea of someone who's outside someone who's uninitiated. Paul says, if someone like that comes into the church service and they hear you all carrying on in tongues, whether those be real or counterfeit, which he says, nobody understands, how will they say amen, so be it, to anything that you're saying? The answer is, of course, they would not be able to do that. They can't. And then Paul's sarcasm picks up again in verse 17. He says, for you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. You know? You might very well be giving thanks. He says, but no one's going to know because no one's going to be built up. And this, of course, has been the issue throughout. To walk in love, to walk in love, to be concerned for others, to see them built up, the mind must be able to comprehend what is going on and what's being said, especially in the church service. This is always the effect of the true gifts of the Spirit. It builds up. They build up. And so we see the conclusion in verses 18 and 19. He says, I thank God. I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. 
Paul's criticism of their counterfeit gifts of tongues isn't born out of jealousy. It's not like Paul's like, I, I've been left out, and so he's being critical of this gift. No, he says, I do that more than all of you. He makes clear that he's actually been graciously given this true gift of tongues and exercised it more than them all. You say, well, where, would, where did this happen? Well, it's hard to say, but it's likely when Paul was traveling around preaching the gospel all throughout the world, Roman world at that time. But I think it's interesting, there isn't a single instance in the book of Acts or in the New Testament where Paul is recorded speaking in tongues. Which makes you wonder how it became such a thing in Corinth. If it was so important to ministry, if it was so essential for the Spirit to work, why was Paul never doing it? But we see him doing what everywhere he goes? Teaching and preaching the Word of God. So despite this magnanimous distribution of the spiritual gift of languages in Paul, he makes clear in no uncertain terms that the simple prophetic word, clear and understandable to all, he says that outstrips in an incalculable, in an incalculable number of words that no one understands. Why? Because it instructs others. It, instru it instructs others. So the clear priority is this, preach the word, preach it clearly. Preach it completely. Preach it passionately in the Spirit's power. But we must do it in a way that others are built up by engaging their mind and that way engaging the heart. Th this is essential. So what does it look like? What does it look like when the church gathers, if the church is walking in love? What, what does that entail? It means not focusing on ourselves, but on others. It means focusing on the church being built up and not our own personal desires. It means prioritizing, as we saw earlier, the proclamation of the word, which we have for us contained in the scriptures. We don't need to go looking for this prophetic word. We have it reliably and powerfully recorded for us in the pages of Scripture. And so we don't need to do anything or we don't need to pursue anything that would detract from that clear proclamation. It means avoiding anything that distracts, anything that draws the affections away from the triune God and His Word. Things like tongues, words from the Lord and whatnot, but even just having, it's why we have an order of service. It's not just free-flowing because that's a distraction, or on an even more practical level, it means avoiding insider jargon or, or seminary speak in favor of clear, understandable languages, a language, excuse me. It even extends to the lyrical content of what we sing, right? We sing music that is filled with scripture and we use musical styles that hopefully don't detract or take away from our understanding of those lyrics and those words. Because as Paul says, we want to pray with our spirit, but we also want to pray with our mind. We want to praise God with our spirit, and we want to praise God with our mind. And so we preach the word, and we pray the word, and we read the scriptures, and we gather around the Lord's table to commune with the word become flesh by the spirit. And all of it, all of it is meant to build one another up as we engage the mind, which then stirs the affections, 
which then moves the will to obedience. And so if there's one thing that Paul has made clear thus far, it is this. God's priority is not ecstatic speech, ecstatic speech, but exposition. And God's priority is not excitement, but edification. This needs to be our commitment. And that's why we preach the way we do. That's why we teach the way we do. It's why we lead music the way we do. It's, it's, everything has to build around this command. And this is Paul's concern that the church would be built up. When we come together to walk in love is to be concerned for others and their building up and their strengthening. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have laid out this command because so often we get distracted by all these other things. And without your word and without your spirit, we would indeed be falling into the same errors that these uh, believers did in Corinth, that we would be more concerned about having the experience, more concerned about having our emotions um, uh, kind of stirred up, more concerned about making a show of ourselves in the church gathering than we would be concerned about building one another up. And I would pray, Lord, that we would set an example for that for others, but that we would be patient with those perhaps who are thinking through these things, patient with those who do not understand them, and that we would look to your word to guide us into the truth and to lead others there as well. Lord, may we, as we come to your table now, may we be built up as we're reminded of the glorious hope we have of the gospel, that which binds us together in fellowship one with another. We pray that as we kind of watch this visible sermon being preached, that our mind would be engaged, but our affections would be stirred, and our will to live for you would be strengthened. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.